This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is a five-time Emmy Award-winning actor, writer, and host of the PBS series John McGivern's Main Streets and Around the Corner with John McGivern. His one-man shows, The Early Stories of John McGivern, Midsummer Night McGivern, and John McGivern's Home for the Holidays are legendary. If you haven't guessed it yet, coming up, I will be talking to Milwaukee's civic treasure, John McGivern. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity, la 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 la. I love that treasure thing. It is true. You are a civic treasure, my friend. When my mom was alive, she people would say, your son is a treasure. And she said, well, I hope they don't bury him. So, <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's, it's all relative. But thank you. Thank well, you no, that. the reason I say that is if anybody spent the day walking around Milwaukee with you, it's like mm -hmm. being in London with Sean Connery. <laughs> Everyone stops. Everybody's got something nice to say. They're always yeah. hollering, hey, John, you know. And part of it is that you're a very visible person in the media. You have a PBS series, which is where those Emmys come from. Yep. But also stage comic and all of that. How much does creativity play into your life? Well, it's funny because you noted that I had five Emmys. Four of them are for my PBS series that's called Around the Corner with John McGivern and the host of this series in Wisconsin, where we travel and talk to people where they live in communities around this great state of Wisconsin. But the first Emmy I won was for a show called The Early Stories of John McGivern, which was a PBS special that aired in 12 markets around the country. And it was taken from a stage show that I wrote called Midwest Side Story, which were by early stories of growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You know, when I moved away for such a long time pursuing this life as an actor, that until I wrote that show and performed it on a stage in Chicago, Illinois, did I finally feel like, oh my Lord, this is what it's like to be creative. This is what creativity really is all about. It's about creating stuff that's personal and that's yours that can be written down that people then look at read or see and say that was great you wrote that and it's like oh my god now i'm creative from that springboard of writing one show in chicago illinois that i've created a career and that happened in 1993 and in the year 2020 i'm like oh i look back and i realize that was my first step in what i knew as a creative life it also is part of where you found your voice. You were a mm -hmm. comedian. You had a lot of talent in other areas, but I think when you began to do the one-man shows, there was an authenticity to the voice and a great attention to detail. So I'd love you to share with us the importance of specifics when you tell stories. 
you know, I'm really specific as far as location, as far as what's what what's the name of the street, what was I wearing, what day was it, what day of the week was it. You know, I tell the story of being a paper boy on Oakland Avenue between Kenwood and Riverside Park, and I name every business that I delivered a paper to. So it's people are always like, how? In God's name, do you remember? Like, I, do you like do you get that as what you do as well? Do people say, "How do you remember?" Well, it's funny because I could also say I don't remember the address, but you could tell it to me on Bartlett Avenue where you grew up. What was that address? Thirty-one, thirty-one North. Thirty-one, thirty-one. So I remember when I put you. We had you in the show, The Wonder Bread Years. We put yeah. the thirty-one, thirty-one uh, address on the door jam because right. your audience also was so familiar from radio, NPR, various things that you were not lying, right? And I thought, right. oh, we need to be truthful even in our set design so that it doesn't feel false. But I will tell you, I did a little different trick when I first did The Wonder Bread Years, which again, a nostalgic nod to growing up. I am telling true stories, but I did the art of subtraction, which was I began to take out things. I never mentioned my age. I never mentioned the specific city I grew up in. Part of that was because I was touring the country and I wanted yeah. people to think it happened near here. And it's different. Once we went and started doing it in areas, like when we went to do it with you in Milwaukee, it became important that we change margarine to butter. And it became important that we change ice cream to custard because right. we were speaking the language of the area. But when traveling, I always found it better to think, Oh, people think I'm a kid that grew up with them in their neighborhood or, you know, I trick-or-treated with them. I, th I think that's really smart on your part, only for the fact that mine is so detailed that I moved away in 1978, moved back in the year 2001. And all of the stuff that is so incredibly specific is specific to this Midwest, to this Milwaukee, to this Wisconsin. So I'm always really hopefully, I do a lot of corporate jobs and a lot of them are in the Midwest. So it's like they get the sensibility. Right. If, if they're Wisconsin, they, they know the building, right. I'd say. It always cracks me up because you name the Monsignor and the, whatever it is, <laughs> it's almost like you're being deposed for some kind of a crime. You know, it's like, I saw it all. <laughs> you describe that one kid as having a head like a cement block or whatever. Kevin Flanagan. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing we both do, and I, I'm a big fan of this, is we use real names of real people. Right. There's something in attitude, in voice, in inflection, that if you describe the girl you had a crush on and you use her name, it comes out. If you talk right. about the kid that bullied you, it comes out. Like, if you try to make up a name, it just doesn't feel regular or normal. And I don't think it sounds regular or normal to those listening either. Right. You know, they're like, that wasn't his name. Right. Kevin Flanagan, you say, that, you know, the cinder block headed redheaded. They're like, God, there really is that guy. Isn't right. Yep, right. that's him. You just mentioned the time that you were away from Milwaukee. I think you were in L.A. in that absence when you were being an actor. Sure. And that was prior to the one-man shows. No, L.A. was after the one-man shows. Okay. So we met in a very unusual way. The best way. <laughs> well, it was it was a long courtship in that your brother, Jimmy, had seen me at corporate events in some exotic locations. I don't know where it was, Bermuda, Puerto Rico, somewhere. And he was a great guy, funny guy, storyteller. Yeah. Anyway, he would always say to me, you should use my brother in one of your plays. He's a funny guy. <laughs> it was almost like a, a stage mom wanted you to see their kid tap dance. And I would go, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. 
And then you had a comedy special that was coming up. I think it was the one, I don't remember the title, but it was essentially comics that were coming out for HBO or for Showtime or something. There were two of them that I've done. Um, and the first was Out There 2 on Comedy Central. Okay. That was, that was one of them. And was Out There 2 the premise that the comedians were, were open in terms of... It was the second all-gay comedy special ever to air. And this was in the fall national coming out day of, in 1994. So that brings me to my curiosity. On your return to Wisconsin, uh, was there hesitation to come back to the Midwest or people already? No, part of, you know, I was really lucky in my career. And my career was that I was an actor waiting for somebody to give me a role, you know, and saying, oh, you're right for this role. Well, it, well, it happened in the early 80s. I auditioned for a union company of sheer madness, which is a show that has been the longest running show in in theater history in the world. It ran in Boston for close to 40 years. It ran in Chicago for 25 years. I got cast in the Chicago production, and no matter where I went, whatever I wanted to do, if I was out of a job, if I was low in cash, I could go fill in at a company at the Kennedy Center in D.C., at the Mason Street Theater in San Francisco, at the Ordway Center in St. Paul, in Chicago. So, you know, I look back on all of that, and it was like, oh, my Lord. And in Milwaukee, people had gone to Chicago to see this show, and I played Tony Wickham, the big, over-the-top gay <laughs> hairdresser. Right. And I developed a relationship with a radio station in town, WKLH, which was the number one morning drive. And since 1993, I have had a relationship with this, no matter where I lived. So I lived in LA, I lived in DC, when I lived in Atlanta, I would call into this morning show. And I was, you know, Milwaukee's own John McGivern from wherever he was. Right. So when I came home, everybody from that number one drive station knew that I was John McGivern. Milwaukee's own John McGivern, the gay guy who right. lived in Los Angeles and had these gay specials. You know, and when you said, have I been out, you know, I've been out since, as my brother Jimmy would say, since he was seven. Right, <laughs> right. I'm aware that you tell stories, great stories, about the 4th of July bike parade where you you put the Barbie on the handlebars. Yeah, I just didn't know whether or not it's, it's fantastic that there was always acceptance. And again, you mentioned that sheer madness role. The show is has multiple endings for those people who don't know. There's different people that can essentially be the murderer based on what the audience decides. Right. So the actors are forced to learn three or four alternate endings. And so that was kind of a fascinating hook that kept people coming back to the theater. And it, it had gotten to a level for you and I that we were producing it. In fact, this time of year right now, we would have been in production and you would be playing that role once again. I'd be leaving for the theater in like a few hours, just so you know, because we had this schedule. You know, we, we co-produced it along with Northern Lights Theater in Milwaukee. And it was, I think, the third or fourth time that we saw it in Milwaukee. But the fact that it had been a few years and we took a chance, we risked the fact that people wanted to see it again. Yeah. And when we played it back in, was it 2014 or something? I mean, it was 14, been a, yeah, uh, yeah. But, but man, it was a huge hit, right? Every seat was yeah. filled. You know, for the most part, we ran for six weeks with really full houses. And to see you lit up in that role, it allows for some improvisation. Sure. Which is really a great skill of yours, that interacting with the audience and being able to stretch a laugh to an uncomfortable length. <laughs> 
where your co-stars always have to wonder how much of this laugh is the play and how much is John right. doing a jazz riff here. Exactly. What's he doing with the towel over there? You know, right. But like that's it. what made the show so alive. I really mm. always enjoy that. Now, you know, you have some funny rituals. And one of them I, I know from being a director and a producer is when you enter a theater in the stages of rehearsal and performance, you set up your dressing room. <laughs> so give us a little bit of the inside ritual of your process when you make up a new theater your home. Well, I'm a little OCD around a lot of stuff. And ritual-wise, I don't think that I have any sort of like, if I don't do this, something's going to go wrong. But I like a routine. People are always surprised that I show up really early. Like if I have an 8 o'clock curtain and the house opens at 730 by quarter to six, I'm there. And I always have an ironing board set up along with an iron that I plug in because costumers love me because I'm like, no, I'll deal with it. I'm going to launder my own costumes and I'm going to iron them. And like, that's really part of my getting ready. And I go into the theater before the house opens and I go through the first 15 minutes. If I'm doing a solo show, especially your shows, which I've you know I've done Whatever Bread Years, Bunk Bed Brothers and Kodachrome Christmas, I go in and I run my first 15 minutes of it so that when I get out there, it's like I've already done this. You don't wanna risk the beatings from me. <laughs> Maybe we can share with people who, who, who don't know you. And I will say part of the fun of having this show about creativity and captivity is that we are able to try to hold the audience captive and also introduce them to a new voice, uh, different kinds of disciplines. And you you cover a lot of territory. When I first saw you, you were doing a one-person show of your own, and it was amazing for many reasons, but you told a true story of, I want to say it might have been around the 4th of July, something where your brother got lost at a picnic and ended up in quicksand and nobody could find him. And it was like a intermission, I think, that we all wondered what what's come of this kid. The bravery and honesty of the storytelling for me was that we were laughing so hard, and then the pathos came, and we were in tears, worried about this kid. So I knew you had range. That was when I said, oh, he's not a comic that has to leave on a laugh. And many times, the shows we've done, we've opted to go towards grace note of some kind at the, at the end of the Kodachrome Christmas, which has to do with loss around the holidays in the Bunk Bed Brothers, which is really a sitcom on stage. But in the final few minutes, it's about the sanctity of brotherhood. Uh, are you going to accept this person or are you going to compete with them the rest of your life and that sort yeah. of thing? And I know you have a number of brothers yourself. You stepping into that role for us, you were used to the brotherly chiding. What was your general experience in doing that particular show on uh, the Bunk Bed Brothers? Well, first of all, it was it was a script that was already tried and successful. And we stepped in and changed a bit of what it was before. And we had my character now was the gay brother. And how was this going to now, you know, my worry as an actor and as somebody, as a co-creator in now a new kind of approach to a script that's not mine, it's like, is this going to work? And I'm going to fail you as the writer and as the director. It worked brilliantly. When I think back at that production, I feel sorry for the stage manager. <laughs> I feel sorry for the prop 
person. I feel sorry for me as an actor because, you know, in the middle of the, the scuba where it was like, this is the hardest physical sort of, I am soaking wet down to my underpants. And it's like this, it was people scream right. every night at all of it. Well, there were a thousand props and <laughs> and there was no rhyme or reason. It wasn't like, hey, they moved from the bed to the desk. It was like <laughs> they slapped the Scrabble board up in the air, pieces are in the carpet, pizzas being flung against the wall. Like there was, it was yeah. mayhem and, and it was kind of like a Kmart blew up in there. Everything had to be reset for show two that night, including right. tears in the wallpaper that were all staged, you know? <laughs> And it was it was really, really a fun thing to develop. But I will say, creatively, we were faced with a challenge when we changed the sexuality for your character. Hmm. And it didn't seem like it was going to be that big of a deal, right? It was like, oh, it's the odd couple, but one of them is gay. What's wrong with that? Well, yeah. when you look at the fact that it was written for two straight brothers, there were lots of things that weren't intended to be jokes, like being afraid of the closet was a childhood fear. And we didn't want that to become a gay joke. We were like, okay, well, we can't right. let this who sleeps on top in the bunk beds. We don't want that to become right. a, we just didn't really want that for you as an actor, for the character, or for the audience to think there was some kind of a wink about it. It wasn't so much challenging to rewrite. We just had to sort of reapproach it. And also I had done one of those roles early in my career when I was in my twenties and these brothers mm. were aging up as as I got older, and then you were one of the oldest pairs of brothers, and we, the other co-writer, Matt Goldman, and I looked at each other, and we said, it's not a problem to make this brother gay. It's a problem to find a dad old enough to be the dad of these two guys. Right. I mean, I think the actor, Richard, who we cast, was in his 90s or close uh, at that time. He was he was he was in his eighties, probably just eighty. Okay, or something. well, he is he's recently passed, but he was a a very talented actor. You guys were a great team for that particular thing. The inspiration for that, you know, when we talk about where does this where the creative ideas come from, is that all the years of watching the Carol Burnett show and seeing mm. Tim Conway and Harvey Corman just break each other up during it, I wanted that essence in a stage play where it appeared as if they were ad-libbing and trying to goof each other around. But every one of the ad-libs, every one of the reason, you know, the, the needle on the record player going at the wrong time and all that was all scripted. And, right. you know, inevitably the reviews always read, well, luckily they got the right actors because there were so many mistakes last night and they saved them all. But what I loved about the show and what I love about your shows is that at the end of it, through the mayhem of Bunk Bed Brothers, at the end when it's all, I mean, the, the set is lost to any sort of organization. And then there's a moment of magic that ties up all of it where it's like, that really can't happen. But there's a suspension of belief around what happens at the end of that show. And at the end of Wonder Bread as well, where, you know, your skill as a magician the fact that I had to now experience that as an actor in your words was really something to to behold. And now I'm like, at the end of my shows, I'm like, you know, what can I do? <laughs> I don't know magic. What kind of trick or hook? <laughs> exactly. Well, there's a, let's talk about the rehearsal process because that's part of our creativity when we work together. Right. And I will say that I witnessed something <laughs> with all actors, but I know your 
process. You're an extraordinary memorizer. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know what you go through on your own because I approach this that I'm working with a professional person. And I expect them to have the words pretty much down before we start blocking the show. Sure. You know, which I wouldn't do for a community production or an amateur thing. But when I'm working with professionals, I don't have the time to have you learning the lines while I'm there. And it doesn't have to be inflections. It doesn't have to be, but the words have to kind of be in your head. But with a one-person show particularly, this is a giant horse pill you have to swallow. You have mm -hmm. to memorize 50, 60 pages worth of content and tell it as a story uninterrupted. And it is a bit of work. And I recognize it from my own work on it, but I was always writing the words and I could change them if I did them myself. Yeah. But when I give them to somebody, the expectation is before we start rehearsal, we can adapt, but is here it is, get to work. You you do it really well, but there's, there seems to be a rhythm where there gets to be a point where you go, I can't do it. I can't, I can't, I can't. And I go, you can, you're going to, it's going to happen and you're going to get over it. And then there's a moment where we rehearse to a point where I go, uh-oh, he's ready and we need an audience. Yeah. Like we got to get a preview audience because you're going to peak in rehearsal. But do you see that same pattern in most of the work? And then you get that first audience and it's amazing to see the adrenaline and everything happening. And then the second night, there's a pattern where you go, oh, I didn't get the same laugh. And you're searching for the laugh. And <laughs> and, it's, uh, and then you forget that you went through that. So the third day is good again. You know, yeah. is there a pattern to that for you? Well, first of all, the one man show thing, it's like, you know, I have not only were yours one-man shows that I did with your words, but I've done, you know, I've done all of them. I've done Fully Committed by Becky Mode. I've done Santa Land Diaries by David Sedaris. I've done American Fiesta by Stephen Tomlinson. You know, I've, I've done all of these one-man shows. And then you get kind of known as the guy who does the one-man shows. I, I have four shows next weekend. And the fact that they're not your words... The fact that they're mine is such a joy because like you just said, I can change the order. I can change any of it because I'm going to do it as almost like a stand-up. So it's just me and the audience without any cues. You know, I do, I do them with cues and with beginnings and ends and the lights go down and we start again. But I love it when it's an hour and 10 minutes of just me on a carpet saying, here's my stories. And the fact that I can change everything. But when it's your words... And when it's somebody else's words that I have to get down before I sit in the rehearsal hall, I start and I do not walk into any rehearsal hall day one without really feeling like I know it. And then, you know, you've experienced me in the middle of it. I don't know this. I just, I can't do this. So, um, well, but we, I'll tell you what, what it does for us, and this is important for others that do this, is it allows us to have a lot of fun. We don't spend yeah. all our time mechanically worrying about the words anymore. Then we're able to try things, move places, do things, handle props differently. We will change dialogue or things if we need a longer cross or if it's funnier to pause or something. The development time to me is always the most creative. Mm-hmm. The writing of it, you know, takes work, takes a little bit of discipline. But to me, that's just a blueprint that we're going to build the house on. And then we're going to start to choose the faucets and the handles and the whatever as we go, right? right? right. So sometimes it's about, can you get me a prop? I remember when we had something where we wanted you to do a thing on the guitar, we got a big tree stump that you could go and stand on the tree stump and play your guitar. And it was like a little stage that a kid would have 
set up to do their little talent show thing. And that really amused me. And that only, I think, came because maybe you said Milwaukee Rep has a tree stump. Like, right. And I was like, okay, let's go look at it, you know? Let's get it, yeah. Yeah, that part of it is unseen. In theater, the audience is usually arriving at the moment that the show is at least intended in its perfected form. Yeah. They don't get to see all the process and the behind the curtains and the frustration. And even though every show is different every night, you've faced most problems before you get there. And when they buy a Broadway ticket, it's their expectation that this be run like a movie. They don't know that stuff gets knocked over and clothes aren't in the right position backstage. Everyone's constantly frantic in those situations. And you have the tendency, just so you know, to write stuff where the audience gets involved. There's always a chunk where there is no script, where in fact the second character in this is that audience and they have got to get their lines or the show does not move forward. And it'd be great to talk about the third show I did for you, which was how that all happened, how I flew into Pittsburgh. Tell how that did. Okay, well, first of all, let me just set up for the audience. It was a show called A Kodachrome Christmas. And I was commissioned by the City Theater in Pittsburgh to write them a Christmas show. And they were very specific about wanting a one-woman show. They wanted it to be interactive and all that. And I couldn't quite figure out why it was so specific. But it was because they had had a run of late-night catechism Christmas show Mm -hmm. that had a woman playing a nun. And so they were kind of wanting to carry that audience forward, I guess. So I cast a woman, we worked hard, we put the show on, and you had been a follower of my work, and we had already worked together a number of times. And so when the opening night of that production happened in Pittsburgh, you were there with your spouse, Steve, in the audience. And it was great. It was like, for me, it was like having family at opening night. And we went out (laughs) afterwards, I think, to talk about the show. And you can tell them what you said to me, and then I can respond. First of all, I just, I loved the show, and I loved the whole sort of, convention of it it's like how it was built and i loved it all and i said you the conceit for for the listener here is that i created a uh, a fake sort of um cable morning show that this woman hosted and then the studio audience was the theater audience and so she could talk to them and they were taping their big christmas special and it meant cookie baking and decorating and bell ringing choir and all kinds of things were going to happen But underneath, it was the first Christmas without her spouse, who was a producer of her show and had passed away. And so it meant that some traditions were going to be awkward and there was going to be some vulnerability around the annual Christmas letter and the family slideshow. That allowed you to to have people to talk to instead of being in a void. Yeah. And the character's name was Erlene Hoople. Just so you know, it was a morning talk show, but it was a cable access Morning, Tasha. <laughs> so yeah. we remember. It was the low end. And by the way, it was happening present day. So by now, nobody's up that early watching her. <laughs> you know, if they bothered to, then it was on TiVo or something, you know. So we, so we, we came to see it. You opened it in Pittsburgh that night, opening night. Success. People loved it. We went out and I said, if you could change Earlene to Earl. I I really want to do this. Come on, Earl can wear a Christmas sweater as well. And what did you say? I said, if you'll do this as a woman, I will direct you in it. 
I said, I'm not going to change the gender right. of this character. And, and then I started thinking how hilarious that would be. And I thought, I don't want to do it as a drag show. I want to do it with the sort of the reverence of Tootsie or Mrs. Doubtfire right. or something where you play Erlene for real. And I think you... You went home thinking about how insane that idea was. You're like, ah, I'm not interested. I don't really want to do that. I don't want to. And you know, my partner, Steve, is the least gay guy. 19 years later, I'm like, can you do a high snap, please? Just say, hey. You know, he can't. So, <laughs> so of course, you know, we, we were together when you talked about this. And he was like, I don't, John, you know, I just don't know. I mean, are you? I, do, would you? And I'm like, he said, just because you're gay doesn't mean that you can convince somebody that you're, and you know me, like in the middle of everything, I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. No, you said that and went home saying yeah. it. You said, I don't, I don't know about that. Let me think about, it. I don't know. And I got started getting like, my mind was like, oh, wait a minute. This could be a ticket sales bonanza oh, Lord. in Milwaukee. One of the beautiful parts about the relationship we have as theater collaborators is the fact that you have done a lot of your own content to a point that you needed new content, yeah, right? Sure. It came along at a time, your audience, while they'll still watch what you've got, they really want the new flavor. What's going on next? What new story do you have mm. to tell? So our timing was quite good coming together on that. But I think I called you because on the plane on the way home, I was like, oh my gosh, one picture of John Ezerline holding a tray of Christmas cookies on a billboard I could sell this out for five weeks immediately. That was my like businessman sense. And I convinced you to do a photo shoot well before we were even doing the show. Months and months and months before. We had no set, we had no anything. So and I and I was I was it, doing work for Milwaukee PBS. And I, I asked if we could use the kitchen set for the kitchen show that they do locally. And, you know, we hired a photographer, a makeup gal, and somebody to do a costume. And, you know, with the we had a wig, wig person, the whole world for that, just for that one photo Showed shoot. Showed up at that photo shoot, sitting on the kitchen counter. People I knew that I had worked with, a, a, a photographer walked past and, and said, hello, ma'am. Like, did not, right. and I thought, oh my God. And you look at the, the shots we got from that photo shoot, and I looked at those and I was like, I'm pretty. Right. <laughs> I, am, I, I can do this. Like, I just thought, look-wise, it's not going to work. But the, the, the legs looked good. The costume looked great. The wig was cute. The face was pounded. I was like, that I can do. Now can I at least move like her, you know? Yeah. The importance of the storytelling to me and why I wanted to be a woman was not to convince you to do this in a skirt right. and the kitten heels. It was more <laughs> that the... Christmas to me is somewhat owned and run by women in the best way. The, the month leading up to Christmas was done by my mom and my aunts and my the neighbor ladies. You embraced the character so much that each year we oh. did it, you became much more serious about the skirt length. I think I need to go mid-calf. <laughs> and you had in your mind a sort of a crossbred between your mom and your aunt yeah. and your sister. And you just made this character come to life in such a tremendous way thank you for that well let me ask you about other some other creative aspects having you have a spouse that does some painting and some carpentry is there ever a conflict between the creativity within the household and in, in decorating or doing anything else or do you connect on a on the level of creativity no i think we do but except in the end i've come to realize that 
it's my way or the highway. Just so you know, <laughs> I've decided this is what it's going to be. But we have these avenues of money making, and one of them is that we own properties in the building we live in. So all of these properties we have have to be not only brought up to a standard that we are used to, they all have to be decorated, they all have to be painted. Sometimes it's great to have a partner that has a say as well, because we've got a dozen properties that have to be furnished and and well-maintained. You know, and we love the fact that that's part of our creative life as well, because it's so different than what we do outside of what I call my real job. The one thing that I, that is really great in terms of our friendship is that because you do so much morning radio yeah. or have over the years, you're a guy that if I'm up at 6 a.m., I know you're up. Yep. And I call you, and sometimes we'll have a conversation, and it's like it's noon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, what's going on? And I'm like, I just got up. Like, there are certain people you know you can call in the middle of the night. There are people you can call, whatever. And you're the guy that, boy, you are on fire from 6 to 9 in the morning. Well, and come nine o'clock at night, if the phone rings, I'm like, somebody died because <laughs> right. nobody calls me at nine o'clock at night. Steve's the same way. Steve is like my dad somehow, because, you know, I was raised in this Brickling Welder Mason house. He was up at five 30 in the morning. He was out of the house with his graveled boots and his black lunch pail with the matching thermos. And I watched Steve leave at quarter to seven and he's got a thermos. And I'm like, I married my dad. Or as my brothers, I have three brothers and two sisters, as they all say, he reminds us of Uncle Pat. And I'm like, shut up. Yeah. But he's a contractor. He works his butt off. And, oh, he's, and he's a great, like, he's impeccable as a painter oh, in yeah. homes yeah, and yeah. all of that stuff. But let me, since you mentioned your father, tell me about your relationship with your dad. I know he passed many years ago, but how was that? Did that impact your world? You know, and I talk to my siblings about this as well, because I tell a little story in in my show, wherever I stand, and tell the same story, is that my dad was the World War II veteran, that if you're my age, you were raised by that generation. And that generation of men believed that the worst word in the English language was lazy. I remember the day incredibly, like it was yesterday, where my dad pulled me into the living room and said, John, you don't want to die. And there on your grave, it says, here lies a lazy man. Is that what you want, John? And I said, Dad, I'm eight years old. I don't know <laughs> if that's what I want. Can I wait till I'm 10 to decide? You know, so it was always my dad's measure of success was based on your grades. I had three paper routes from sixth to ninth grade. I graduated from eighth grade with $1,283 in the bank. It was all based on, I, nobody can look at me and think I'm lazy, can think that I'm not productive, can, until COVID happened. Now they're like, what? Right, and now again, you have $1,063 exactly. in the bank. The reason I asked about your dad is I don't know yeah. that much about him, right? I do. I think I've seen a portrait a little bit in some of your storytelling, but I do know the importance mm-hmm. of your mom mm-hmm. and as important as my mom is into my humor and all of that, that there is not a story you ever tell about your mom that isn't Mm -hmm. hilarious. And again, I know that you lost her this year, but she sort of lives on in everyone feels like they know her. Yeah. All those morning shows, those routines are based on truth and heart and humanity. Mm -hmm. And she's not so quirky. She's just sort of, a very specific right. mom type. You know, how would you describe her to a 
first time listener? Well, first of all, it's this is the first time next weekend is the first time I'll step on stage since my mom passed. There's so many through lines that include my mom's the thread that sews it up. But she was an incredible reader and really made reading and education and the library and the bookstore and all of that so important to her six shanty Irish poor kids on the east side of Milwaukee. So that gift was never to never ever to be like thanked enough for. My mom uh, recently made a move. My dad passed a year or two ago, and when she was moving from her home to an apartment, she was boxing things up, and there was an old Encyclopedia Britannica set <laughs> where nothing in it's relevant. You know what I mean? Like, borders of countries have changed. There's no longer Prussia. It's just insane that she wanted to keep these Encyclopedia Britannica, and they're bulky, Heavy. and they're, and she was like, occasionally, I like to look at them. So... She proceeded when she was packing to pack a couple of encyclopedias in the bottom of each box so the boxes would still be liftable, right? Instead of a, all of them in one. So there'd be like A and B and then some dishes and some, something, and then the next one and then some clothes and whatever. And she did that with all these boxes and they were all ready to get moved. And then the people who were moving into the house that she sold had young kids, and she said, oh, would you like the encyclopedias? So she had to open all the boxes, get all of her stuff out to get to each pair, you know, just ridiculous. How great that she gave those up, though. Yes, it's awesome. And, you know, I remember as a kid going to the page with the translucent where you could see the oh, human right. body and see the bones and the nervous system and all of that and just laboring yeah. over that you know right oh jeez. well i appreciate you sharing that story and investing this time a couple things i'd love to get your opinion on and one is this show is intended for folks that have a creative gene in them or are developing or designing or doing visual art or telling stories you know is there anything you could share that would be a creative spark for folks that they could think about this week or maybe something that's a pattern in your process or craft? You know, I think it's real important to uh, acknowledge and embrace and give voice to experience that you believe is not universal, experience that you believe is way too specific for anyone else's desire to know. Because I've come to know that when I share that that is most guarded, what I hear back from people is the street was different, the names were different, but can I tell you what happened in your heart? Happened in mine. So I think it's really important you step out of a zone that's called comfort and you share something that you believe is too specific for most. I think daring to be vulnerable mm -hmm. in storytelling is you want to be the hero of the story, but often mm -hmm. it's your biggest flaw and fault where people connect, I think, yeah. the deepest. Yeah. Taking a risk. Yeah, it's it's important. Creativity is, we all have it. We all can do it. We all have it in us to look at ourselves as creative individuals. It's not hard. When I hear people say, I'm not creative, mm. they've just become the warden of their own yeah. prison. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You do this. You're the creative one. I go, no, you just... <laughs> Tell the story the way you would tell it at the Thanksgiving yeah. table. Don't worry about it. It's instinctual. Story is uh, as important to human beings as shelter and food and water. People don't understand that 
most of our day is made up of yeah. story. It comes in the form of a news story. It comes in the newspaper. We hear it on the radio. We walk outside and we say, hey, somebody, watch out. There's I saw a rattlesnake in the ground. That's a story that saves yeah. a life. And I mean, I think that you, uh, as a storyteller, in many ways, you're a healer. You let people visit their emotions on a different level. In addition to what you said, Steve would no sooner step on a stage and tell a story, like it's just not him. But, you know, every Tuesday night from six o'clock till 930, he's in a he sits at a potter's wheel. And on Thursday night, he's at a painting class. You know, I look at what our creativity, what it takes the form of, and it's all different for everybody. So it's like for me to sit down and outline a story that I think will be great in whatever, wherever I stand up next with a light on me. Steve is working the same sort of tools, I believe. I think creativity expressed itself in cooking, yeah. in decorating, in singing, in dancing. It is expression. Yep. It's not specific. Some people do it as a collector. That's what's so fascinating is you have to give yourself permission and invest in your creativity. And I think that our society and our system pushes a little bit away from it. For many people, school itself says stop we're taking away the playground, we're taking away recess, you know, because they want to get you into a stable place of academia. Even the arts themselves are always a question mark for people, but it does open a whole different side yeah. of our brain. And it's always great, like when we get together, where it's to be co-creative, to be creative with somebody else in the room who has voice and who has opinion who and who has experience. There's nothing better than that. And who has, in the end, like a real trust in the fact that what we're going to accomplish is going to be accomplished. That's really important. Well, collaboration is a birthing mm -hmm. process. And it never turns out to have the genes of one parent. It's it's so much bigger and better when people are working in a way where their input and their ideas are respected and considered. And, you know, it gets sorted out in the end. But, boy, when you see a Broadway play or when you see a movie come out, you know, it isn't one storyteller. The writer creates a blueprint. The director general contracts, the building of it, the editor gets very specific in picking the framing. You're lucky if anything turns out to be magnificent. But I think people do it with such passion and such loving and such intention that they're trying to raise the child yeah, for good. Yeah. You know, I had an experience last night. Just so you know, I was sitting, going through, you know, Netflix, and then I went to Disney Plus, and I watched Taylor Swift's The Long Pond session. First of all, she made me feel lazy because during this pandemic, she has created an entire album that she released just recently. And they went back, you know, it was all done in different studios. So she was alone through the whole thing. And she talked about what it was like to create content on an album by herself for nine months. And that when she got it done with these producers from all over the country, and they finished this album that she went to her label and said, I have this fully realized disc ready to go. And they were like, oh, perfect. But she did all of that by herself. So I'm sitting on the couch going, maybe I should turn this TV off. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> maybe it's time to do that. And really great music. And so I thought, here I am, a 66-year-old gay guy watching Taylor Swift at quarter to eight at night. But what she did, like she, she motivated me to realize that we all can do it.
Yeah, she's the ghost of your dad telling you not to be lazy, Get John. <laughs> He's come back as Taylor Swift. With that, I thank you for investing the time, the energy, and giving a story to our hmm. audience. It's a pleasure to always to work with you and collaborate with you. I encourage everyone to check out John McGivern, go to his website. He's got a, many a DVD of his tours around cities in Wisconsin, but he's got his one-man comedy shows, and they're all worth a watch. Not a one of them is a waste of your time. So uh, thank you, John. Thanks, Pat Hazel. Talk to you. Bye. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right. It's dot .fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty.